glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all. Let's learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Welcome back, OOBTers, and welcome to the new year with the Open Our Bibles Together with M. Faring podcast. I'm so glad to be back here studying with you again. And you have my sincerest thanks for extending me the grace to take a much-needed break from the podcast to allow me time and space to be fully present with my family during the holiday season as we took moments to celebrate, to be grateful for our Rescuer, for the gift of God with us, especially in the hard good lives God is writing for us all. Anyway, with that said, before we dive back into our studies in the book of Exodus, I felt the need to share today some thoughts and perspectives God has been placing on my own heart during the Christmas season and right on into this new year. Some of the truths my own heart so needed to hear, needed to be reminded of, as we've officially ended 2023 and have now entered 2024. Maybe yours does too. So let's start our time together today by revisiting our conversation found at the end of the last episode of OOBT when I read from the Our Hope Has Come Advent study in a section titled Look to the Promises Kept. Let me just reread a part of that to help us get a bit of a framework for our time together today. The circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth and early childhood were wrought with constant complications and plot twists. At almost every juncture, all hope seemed lost, or at least deferred. A virgin mother, no sufficient place to be born, a murderous king, evacuation to Egypt. Yet, at those very junctures, in the middle of the chaos and the darkness, scriptures are fulfilled. This clearly shows us that our God, He's King. No one can undo His will, thwart His plans, or outmaneuver Him. Herod tried, as we saw he delusionally attempted to interrupt God's plans. Yet at every point, he played right into the hands of God, creating the very circumstances by which a prophecy would be fulfilled. Each step of trying to kill the Christ played out as fulfillment for his coming. Herod's story leaves us reflecting on this important truth. God has all authority over any enemy, and though it seems our hope may be deferred, it's only temporary. His plan will end up working. Even when we're crying into the night, the pieces really will fall into place. God is omniscient, turning things for good. He always has been. Phew, that Christmas story alone includes a lot of pieces and parts to tie together from the Bible's big picture story. Am I right, my OOB tears? When you start considering all the ways our previous time in Exodus, in Egypt, factored into the intricate details of God's rescue plan through Jesus, when you start recognizing what is often referred to as the red thread of redemption throughout these stories, in that overall storyline of the Bible, and when we start seeing how there are so many commonalities and overlaps and themes, just as we discovered in our 2023 Advent episodes, when we discuss the places, people, events in the Christmas story, plus what we've already seen in our studies in Genesis and Exodus, Isaiah's prophecy, and so, so many more, it really is beautiful to consider how those all point us to the promise of Christ. So the answer to the question you may be asking right about now is yes. I'm going to pull some of those pieces and parts of the Christmas story right on into the new year with us. But as I've also mentioned before, it truly is important that we carry the promises fulfilled by the Christmas story and God with us throughout the year. Our Emmanuel, our God with us, our promise keeper. And then there is this truth that spurred much of the content of our time together today as well. We have seen this demonstrated for us over and over again in not only the birth of Jesus, but even previously with the Israelites in the book of Exodus. And it is this, God's plans can't be stopped then just as they can't now in our lives today either. And God is always working in the waiting. When we think of our studies in Exodus and also our Advent studies focusing on the names God gave to Jesus in the book of Isaiah 700 years prior to his birth, I was intrigued to come across this connection of the name Mighty God to when God called himself I Am to Moses at the burning bush. This connection was found in the Searching for Christmas book by J.D. Greer. He begins... I want to rewind back through history, but not to the first Christmas and the events we're so familiar with, the manger scene, shepherds watching sheep, angels singing their songs, and wise men arriving. I want to go back further than that, because there's more to this Christmas story than these oh-so-familiar events. I want us to land around 800 BC. It was at that point that a man named Isaiah, claiming to speak as a messenger from God, announced that the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son. 
Chapter 7, verse 14. A baby was coming who would be born in the most unlikely and humanly speaking impossible circumstances. Now, maybe the part of the Christmas story when a virgin gets pregnant is the part where you check out and file it as a myth. But I think that's the part where you should sit up and listen, because that event was foretold over 700 years before. God had been preparing for the first Christmas centuries before Mary first laid her newborn baby in a feeding trough. This isn't a myth, but a real history. The most unlikely birth in human history was a sign from God that He was real and that He really gets involved because He really cares. The people to whom Isaiah made this prophecy, the people of Israel, were desperate to hear something, anything from God. They were, said Isaiah, a people walking in darkness. It was a time of national crisis. Economically, they had been devastated. They were facing invasion, and so their very existence as a nation was under threat. There was a darkness of uncertainty about their future, of fear about their safety, of feeling that they were all alone, of a sense that they were helpless and they were hopeless. There was the darkness of knowing that things had gone wrong and knowing that there was no way to put things back together the way that they were supposed to be. They were searching for something to hold on to, and God said that what they needed was the birth of a baby. What they were searching for was what He would do at the first Christmas. As we come to the end of this year, we too know how it feels for everything we thought that was certain to become suddenly uncertain. We know the sensation of the ground shifting and even sinking beneath us. We've experienced a sense that there is no way to put things back together the way they used to be. We're aware, more than ever, and perhaps for the first time, that prosperity, our nation's economy, and even our own lives are more fragile than we'd like them to be. Most of us know something of the darkness and shadows this Christmas. Maybe this Christmas you're unsure what the next year holds for you. Your job security is shaky. Your marriage is crumbling. Your health is fading. Maybe this is the first Christmas that you've felt alone. Or maybe you felt like that for longer than you can remember. Maybe you don't know where to go or where to turn. Or maybe things are okay, but still you wonder if there is something more, and you sense that maybe that more might involve God. We are searching for something to hold on to, and God says to us the same as He said to those people facing darkness all those centuries ago, that perhaps, without knowing it, we're searching for Christmas. Strange as it may sound, God says to us that, in times of plenty and in times of crisis, What we most need is the birth of a baby. A child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. Names matter. That's why all of the virgin babies' names were chosen by God. He wanted the babies' names to describe why this was the greatest gift he could give, the most valuable present ever given. The baby we usually call Jesus was named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So now that the calendar has flipped from celebrating Christmas to another new year, I think we can agree that we're feeling some, if not all, of these feelings that they were feeling during that time when Isaiah shared the names to be given to Jesus. And then they waited. Seven more generations with a promise and a longing for Him to come. Oh goodness, friends. Seven generations of waiting. We too are waiters along with all of those from the New Testament times, for Jesus' second advent, his second coming, when he will make all things new. Quick side note here. She Reads Truth is actually right now in their Everything New study, in which they're leaning into all these promises of God surrounding Jesus' second coming to us and what that means. So valuable as we are people in the waiting to understand the promises our Father God has made to us in the wait. As always, I'll be sure to link this in the show notes for you. And as for God's promises to make everything new, we can know with 100% certainty that no matter how many generations continue to pass, God will make good on His promises to send Jesus again, our promise keeper. I love that about Him. In the meantime, though, God is also referred to as our I Am, of which when we understand more clearly just what that name of God means, it makes all the difference in our lives. Today, right now, no matter the joys or the pains, the plans or the unfulfilled dreams— That's so good. Now, in the interest of time, let's just lean into the name or title Mighty God, I Am, as given to Jesus in this verse in Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. Greer continues by saying, Isaiah's claim that the baby who will be born at the first Christmas would be Mighty God. Notice that the first big statement he's making there, that there is a God. Out there, beyond what we can see and measure, there is not nothing. There is a God. But what kind of God? What was Isaiah thinking of when he used the word God? Well, 
because Isaiah was a member of the ancient nation of Israel. When he spoke of God, he had a very specific God in mind, the God who had been with Israel from the time that they were just a tiny family and who had brought them to nationhood and to the land that they lived in as Isaiah passed on his message. This God had a name. God isn't a name. It's more of a category. Just about everyone in the ancient world believed in a God or gods. The question wasn't, is there a God, but rather, which of the gods are you talking about? And one of the most crucial ways of knowing God was knowing his name. God had told his name to the people hundreds of years before Isaiah's time, to another member of Israel, Moses. Moses had lived at the time when the people of Israel were slaves, oppressed by Egypt. And one day, at a burning but not destroyed bush, God told Moses that he was going to rescue his people and give them freedom. Moses was not at all sure. He had made some really disastrous decisions, and he had a lot of questions about where God had been while his people were in slavery and whether God would really come through for them this time. God did not answer a single one of Moses' questions. He simply told Moses to trust him, and he told him that he had an assignment for him, a plan for his life, to bless him and to use him. And then Moses asked God a question that God did answer. What is your name? To which God responded by simply saying, I am, as found in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. In English, we write that as Jehovah, or in lots of Bibles, as Lord. It is a name that God uses to describe himself some 6,519 times in the Old Testament alone. And part of what it means is that God is someone who is all that his people need, and that there is no lack in them that he cannot overcome. Moses was not convinced that he could do what God was asking. I'm not brave, he said. I'm not someone who anyone will listen to, he said. I'm not even good at public speaking, he said. God did not reply with a pep talk. He didn't show Moses his hidden potential. Instead, he said, Moses, I did not choose you because of any of those things. I am enough for both of those things, for both of us. I am, and my amness overcomes your notness. Ultimately, what matters is who God is, not who Moses is. Throughout Israel's history, God would remind them of this name, I am, Jehovah, whenever Israel was in a time of great distress or fear or need, and whatever they lacked, God would tell them that he would supply it. He told them he was Jehovah Mekadoshim, I am the one who changes and purifies you. He could change them when they were stuck. He told them he is Jehovah Shammah, I am ever present. He would be with them when they were alone. He told them he was Jehovah Ra, I am a shepherd. He would guide them when they felt lost. He told them he is Jehovah Jireh, I am your provider. He would give them what they needed when they thought they had no way out. He told them he is Jehovah Rapha, I am your healer. He could help them when they were helpless. He could bind their wounds when they seemed incurable. He told them he was Jehovah Shalom and Jehovah Sabaoth, I am peace and I am your defender. He would give them victory when they faced down their enemies. For all that Israel needed, for all they lacked, for all they could never be in themselves, they had God, the great I am, the mighty God. Just imagine this for a moment, that there really is one God who made and rules everything, and that he is still all of these things, a purifying, ever-present, shepherding, providing, healing, defending God. Wouldn't it be great to have him in your corner? If he really exists, of course. Which brings us to Christmas. Remember when Isaiah said, To us a child is given, mighty God. He was saying that one day the great I Am will be born as a tiny baby. The eternal, all-sufficient I Am was going to enter the world as a helpless child. That's the Bible's claim about the first Christmas. Peer over the manger and you're not looking at a poor newborn Jewish boy. You're looking at none other than I Am. That's the claim. But is it true? There would have been an easy way to find out. Could this person do things that only an all-powerful deity could do? Fast forward 30 years, and the baby has become a man. He's out at sea with his friends, the guys we call the disciples, and there's a terrible storm. Many of the disciples are fishermen by trade, so they know what they're doing on that boat. But this storm is huge, and soon they're all fighting for their lives. Meanwhile, Jesus is asleep. In all that racket, with the boat pitching and rolling, this is a wonder in itself. Eventually, though, the disciples grow so desperate that they wake him up, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Jesus wakes up, looks out at the storm, and says, Silence, be still. The result? The wind ceased, and then there was great calm. Mark chapter 4, verses 38 and 39. He looks at the wind and the waves, and he basically says, Cut it out. He rebukes the storm. Rebuke is what you do to somebody whose authority is less than your own. 
Here is a guy who rebukes the weather, and the weather listens to him. He just stands up and turns it off. And his disciples, who'd called him a teacher in the middle of the storm, now look at each other with a new kind of fear. They ask, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Mark chapter 4, verse 41. They need to follow the evidence of what they've just seen. There's only one being who can stop a storm with a word, the mighty God, Jehovah, I am. Jesus is telling them by showing them, I am your rescue when you have no hope. In fact, that's what the name Jesus actually means. The Hebrew version of the name is Yeshua, I am your rescue. Jesus didn't just claim to be the great I am clothed in humanity. He proved that he was who he said he was. Does the great I am exist? Yes, he came and walked on this earth, and on the pages of history, he calmed a storm. He walked on water. He cured blindness and deafness and paralysis. He even raised people from the dead. He did things that we cannot even imagine doing. He is what we are not, the mighty God. And so Christmas brings clarity to our questions about God. Is there no God or many gods? Is there one God? And if so, what is he actually like? The only way to get beyond guessing is if that God, if he's out there, comes into our existence and reveals himself to us. In coming to earth as Jesus, that's exactly what he did. Here's where it gets interesting. When Jesus came to live among us, just like Isaiah prophesied, he did the exact same thing that God did in the scriptures. He took the name of God, I am, and he applied it to whatever we needed, to our greatest areas of brokenness and pain. Jesus' I am statements included, I am the bread of life, the living water, the light of the world, the door of salvation, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, and the resurrection, and so many more. The baby born at Christmas doesn't just bring clarity. He also brings hope. Because if what Jesus says is true, I am isn't just about power. It's also about presence. How would life look different if you knew in every trial, every challenge, every heartache that he stood by your side? How would it feel to be able to say, Jesus can heal me of my hurts and scars. Jesus can change me when I cannot change myself. Jesus is present with me when I feel all alone. Jesus is shepherding me when I do not know which way to go. Jesus is providing for me when I cannot work it out. Jesus is defending me when I feel defeated. Jesus is rescuing me from all I need saving from. For all that I need, for all that I lack, for all that I can never be in myself, Jesus is the great I am. One thing that everyone reading this has in common is this. We each deal with all kinds of insecurities and brokenness. Undoubtedly, you have your own fears and struggles and failings and worries. Maybe you're trying to forget them over the Christmas season. Maybe there are things in your life that no one else knows about, things so dark or so painful that you hardly dare admit them to yourself, and you say, who on earth is able to help with this? Who could possibly get through that? Who could possibly sort that out? Who is able to find an answer to what I'm facing? I know I am not. And Jesus says, I am. How am I supposed to know which way to go? I am. I'm not really sure who is on my side. I am. Nobody's listening to me. I am. My marriage is crashing and I don't know where to turn. I am. Everybody thinks I can't do it. I am. What if I fail again? I am. I don't know if I can face the pain of my past. I am. I've made so many mistakes. I am. I've given all that I could give and it's not enough. I am. I just need a fix or a hit or a drink. I am. This Christmas season, I can't hold on. I am. This new year, I can't make it. I am. I'm tired. I am. I quit. I am. I feel alone. I am. I need a fresh start. I am. I just need somebody to hold me. I am. Here's what it means to know that Jesus is the mighty God who has come to be with us and to prove that he's there and to show us that he cares. It means that for all you are not, for all that you need, for all that you fear, for all that you crave, he is the great and eternal I am. Who else would you rather have on your side? Did you catch that last part, my OB tears? Let me say it one more time just to be sure. Here's what it means to know that Jesus is the mighty God who has come to be with us and to prove that he's there and to show us that he cares. It means for all that you are not, for all that you need, for all that you fear, for all that you crave, he is the great and eternal I am. Our mighty God, for all that we are not, for all we need, for all that we fear, God is the mighty and eternal I am. 
Those words remind me of our Call to Go episode about OBT in last January, in which we read from Louis Giglio's book, I Am Not, But I Know I Am. I'm going to reread this excerpt for us because, like me, I believe that we'll all hear this one a bit differently than we did in our reading in January of 2023, especially after all of our studies in Exodus this past year. The Divine Invitation chapter reads, God is always looking for ordinary people to play significant roles in His unfolding story. And given that He is God and supremely confident in Himself, He is free to choose the least among us, the slowest, the lesser known, the last, the smallest, the poorest, to accomplish amazing, God-sized stuff. While as humans we try to partner with the brightest and most powerful, God is simply looking for people who are willing to take Him at His word, those confident that with Him in the equation, everything is possible. So try to put yourself in God's shoes for a minute. Your people are enslaved in Egypt, toiling day and night, building monuments to the fame and greatness of the pharaohs. Yet you have a redemption plan, a deliverance mission, and you're looking for a spokesman to take your agenda to the most powerful man in the most powerful empire on the planet, demanding that he let your people go free. Who are you going to choose to lead Israel out of bondage? What criteria are you going to use to narrow the field of candidates? How will you train the person you choose to lead? How will you ensure the success of the mission? Well, you probably wouldn't choose a stuttering shepherd with wilting self-esteem, an aging man on the downslope of life who for years had been on the run from the mighty Pharaoh after killing one of his slave drivers back in Egypt. Would you? But that's exactly who God chose, just the guy he invited to take the helm in this chapter of his unfolding story. I'm guessing you probably know what happened. When Moses looked up, a nearby bush was on fire but what was really strange was the fact that the bush continued to burn without being consumed. Intrigued, Moses stopped to investigate, and when he moved in for a closer look, a voice thundered out of the flames. Moses, Moses. Moses stopped in his tracks. God had found his man. Not that finding Moses was all that difficult for God. He didn't have to do a Google search. He knew exactly where to find him. For even though Moses was on the backside of nowhere, the nowhere he was on the backside of was a place called Mount Horeb, a name which means the mountain of God. Moses probably thought he was alone with the flock for another dusty day, stranded in the wilderness, just counting the days in the closing chapters of his life. Little did he know that he was tending his sheep in God's neighborhood, or that he was about to be invited to play a major role in God's deliverance plan. In what would turn out to be a very prophetic reply, Moses answered, Here I am. That's when Moses' world turned upside down. Take off your sandals, Moses, and don't come any closer, God exclaimed. You are on holy ground. I doubt Moses needed a second admonition. Instantly, he ripped the sandals from his feet and buried his face in his hands. Now that he had Moses' undivided attention, God laid out his plan. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them and bring them into a good and spacious land. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Did you notice all the first-person pronouns God is using to state His case? I have seen. I have heard. I'm concerned. I'm coming down. I'm going to do something. God's mind was set. His plan was in motion. Failure was not an option. No insurmountable obstacle stood in His way. He had sized up Pharaoh, a man of unrivaled political and military power, and decided to use him as a pawn in his story. The redemption mission would go on as scheduled— Pharaoh's army notwithstanding, and a couple million people would journey through an arid desert wasteland to safely arrive in the land long ago promised to their forefathers. Mark it down. It was going to happen. God was confident that the promised land, the place he had chosen for Israel to dwell, was suitably perfect, even if presently inhabited by skilled warriors defending cities whose fortress walls would intimidate any man. God wasn't deterred, and he didn't need assistance. But he had chosen to use a man, a human mouthpiece, someone who would carry his message and lead his cause. That's when, for Moses, the conversation took an ominous turn. Without taking a breath, God added, So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What? All of a sudden, the first person God is going to do something amazing through someone else, someone small. Somehow the I and me pronouns evaporate, and Moses is left reeling in the wake of blatantly second-person marching orders. Now you go. Confused and overwhelmed, Moses blurts out, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I think what was going through Moses' mind were the same kind of thoughts that have raced through yours and mine when we're called by God to do something that seems way beyond our abilities. 
God, are you serious? Is this a joke? Have you mistaken me for somebody else? Surely you don't think I can pull this off, do you? Who, me? Do what? But look more closely at what God actually said to Moses. When he said, you go and bring them out, he wasn't thinking Moses was going to actually do the delivering. God wasn't counting on Moses' skill or power to break the chains of bondage that held his people captive. God was going to do all the work. He just wanted a leader with skin to speak on his behalf and lead the people to his promised destination. All along, God was counting on himself to pull the story off, not Moses. Definitely not Moses. When God said, you go, he was implying, I am going to do this with or without you, Moses, but I've been searching for just the right partner, a regular guy who will believe that I am able to do exactly what I have said I will do. You just need to merge onto the highway of my agenda, my promise before, now happening, already in motion agenda, and watch me go. Don't deviate from what I am saying. Trust me. Follow me without fear of any man. This is going to be amazing. Oh, and by the way, I could do it all by myself, but I'm choosing to use a human vessel, a tangible flesh and blood ambassador for the cause, and I am choosing you, Moses. So now you go. But these last two words were the only ones Moses heard. You go. Immediately, the questions and doubts gushed out of his mouth. A stuttering man like me? You want me to go to Pharaoh? How? He'll kill me. Interestingly, God didn't respond with a pep talk, and he didn't send Moses to the center for you-can-do-it training in an effort to boost his confidence. No, God didn't waste any time, not one second, trying to pump Moses up for the task. He didn't inflate Moses' self-esteem by filling it with a boatload of, come on, Moses, you can do this. I believe in you. You've just got to believe in yourself, encouragement. Instead, God answers Moses' who-am-I question with five life-shifting words as he simply affirms, I will be with you. When God invites us into his story, assigning us various roles that are seemingly too big for any of us to carry out, his affirmation is always the same. I will be with you. It's as if he was saying to Moses, don't worry about who you are. Just focus on the reality that I'm going too. And if I go with you, trust me, everything's going to work out fine. Bottom line, God and anybody else is an overwhelmingly powerful team. By now, things were getting dicey for Moses, but he didn't fold up and run. After all, the bush was still a raging flame and a holy hush was hanging thick in the air. Barefoot and trembling, Moses somehow mustered the courage to ask God to produce some personal identification. Honestly, who can blame him? It's not likely Moses is going to go charging into Egypt, instantly gaining the trust of the Israelites, while also striking fear in the heart of an iron-fisted dictator like Pharaoh. No, before that was going to happen, Moses knew he'd need a lot more information about the one who was sending him and who would be going with him. How will they know we had this conversation, Moses likely stuttered. They won't believe the burning bush thing, even if I tell them, and they won't be able to sense the otherness of your presence like I can right now. If they say, and just who is this God you were talking to out in the wilderness, what will I tell them? Can you believe it? Moses is asking the God of all creation to tell him his name. It's important here to grasp the gravity of the situation. Of course, God already knew Moses' name. He repeatedly called him by his first name at the outset of this exchange. But Moses didn't know his. Since the dawn of time, God had been referred to as Yahweh, meaning Most High God, a name so revered by the generations preceding Moses, they rarely even wrote it out in full, choosing instead to abbreviate it. But that revered title was really more of a description than a personal name. No one knew God's personal name, and as far as we know, no one had dared to ask. You have to understand, it's not as though God was just a little higher and a little more holy than Moses, someone you just stroll up to and say, hey man, what's up? No, we're talking about the infinite one, the one whose voice alone causes worlds to be born and grown men to hide their faces, having a conversation with a little, frail, finite creature, a creature who wants to know if he can call Almighty God by name. God was in no way obligated to answer, yet without hesitation, he did. To this aging shepherd, God revealed his name, saying, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent me to you. What? I'm pretty sure Moses didn't get it right away. In fact, he was probably thinking, that's what I'm asking you, God. You are who? And the reply comes back, I am. Long pause. That's who. Your name is I am? That's right, Moses. My name is I am who I am. My name is I am. I wonder how long it took for God's name to register in Moses' brain. It's an amazing name. In Hebrew, the word for I am is haya, the pronunciation of which originates deep down in the throat. Think of the loud karate expression here. Haya carries with it the idea of the very breath of God. In English, the name I am translates into the verb to be, or simply be. Therefore, God's name is be, 
I am equals I be. Not great grammar, I know, but powerful theology. God knew it was imperative for Moses to know who he was, that he was I am. I am is the present tense, active form of the verb to be. As God's name, it declares that he is unchanging, constant, unending, always present, always God. God was telling Moses, I am the center of everything. I am running the show. I am the same every day forever. I am the owner of everything. I am the Lord. I am the creator and sustainer of life. I am the Savior. I am more than enough. I am inexhaustible and immeasurable. I am God. In a heartbeat, Moses knew God's name and something more. He finally knew his. For if God's name is I am, Moses' name must be I am not. I am not the center of everything. I am not in control. I am not the solution. I am not all-powerful. I am not calling the shots. I am not the owner of anything. I am not the Lord. And that's my name, too. And yours. I am not. Just try it under your breath. My name is I am not. I am not running everything. I am not the head of anything. I am not in charge of anything. I am not the maker. I am not the savior. I am not holding it all together. I am not all-knowing. I am not God. Sure, people might call you Tommy or Eddie or Amanda or John or Michelle or Aaron or Michael. But let's face it, when you get right down to it, all of our names are I am not. And God's name is still I am. While Moses was still reeling, God continued, This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Exodus chapter 3 verse 15. In other words, God wanted Moses to know that not only would he remain the same, his name would endure to every generation that would inherit earth, even to our generations, mine and yours. I love this verse because it puts us in the story. Oh, you may have been just calling him God all these years, and in fact, that's who he is. But he gladly told Moses his name is, I am, be. And that's still his name today, right now, wherever and whoever you are. God is big, we are not. He is calling the shots, directing the script, and determining the plot. We are not. And what's really wild is that while he doesn't need any of us, he is choosing to include us, inviting us into the story that never ends. Try to fathom it. Little you and me invited into the massive and mysterious story of the great I am. Are you up for it? Goodness, that last part gets me every time I read it, friends. God is big. We are not. He is calling the shots, directing the script, and determining the plot. We are not. And what's really wild is that while he doesn't need any of us, he is choosing to include us, inviting us into the story that never ends. Try to fathom it. Little you and me invited to the massive and mysterious story of the great I am. Unbelievable and beautiful all at the same time, am I right? Actually, this thought leads me to the next direction or thread we're going to go together today on OOBT. This time from Passion City Church's message series with Louis Giglio that I listened to throughout the month of December. Before we dive into those, though, let me just give you a quick overview to see just how God used this series to reinforce what we already studied in our Advent episodes, plus added some new related threads to pull as well. I'll just briefly list them out, and then we'll take a deeper dive into a few of the topics together. With that said, I strongly recommend that you take time to go to the show notes and listen through each one of them because it is truly amazing how God speaks to us in this way. So, so good. Please don't miss hearing more about these overlaps, friends. Okay. Here's my brief overview for you. Sleep in Heavenly Peace message by Louis Giglio discusses God's plans as evidence in the details surrounding Jesus' birth and also in the scope of God's 63,779 cross-references in the Bible. More on that point to come here in a minute. Too amazing to not lean into fully my OOB tears. The next message, Let Earth Receive Her King by Brad Jones, references Simeon's wait for the promised Messiah, plus details some of God's promises for us today through these five I will statements spoken by Jesus in Scripture. Number one, I will lay down my life for you, John chapter 10, verse 11. I will send my Holy Spirit to help you, John 14, 6. Number three, I will give you rest, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Number four, I will never let you go, John 6, 37. And number five, I will come back to take you with me, John 14, 3. The birth of Christ and the death of death by Louis Giglio detailed more about those cross-references throughout the Bible, as evidenced in the story of the wise men, Herod's edict to kill the boys under age two in Bethlehem, and Joseph and Mary fleeing to Egypt for safety. As a side note, do you believe how familiar these are all sounding? Our rescuer came down, Emmanuel, Simeon, 
the wise men, King Herod, out of Egypt, God called his son, wow. And then moving on to the last of this message series, in We Be Held, Louis Giglio discusses I am or I be, as we were just reminded of in the excerpt I read a bit ago from the I am not, but I know I am book. Overlaps? Threads? Connections, anyone? Oh goodness, I told you my study times in December and right on into January have been full of them. Definitely important for us to slow down and take notice of these type of moments to see what God is trying to say to us. That's why I'm trying to do my best to unpack them for us in today's episode. My prayer is that what makes sense to me and my thoughts are connecting for you too. Fingers crossed that's the case, my friends. <laughs> anyway, this message from Louis also takes a deeper dive into the words beheld and behold in such a beautiful way. I truly do hope you take time to hear it for yourself. So now that I've given you an overview of this Christmas message series from Passion City Church, and as we are a couple weeks into the new year, let's take a closer look at another theme developed across all of these messages, the idea of God's plan. Not only God's plan at work in the Christmas story, but also God's plan at work in our lives as well, today, in 2024. Rather than referencing each message individually, I'm just going to share excerpts that align together to see the full scope and development of this theme. Here goes. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a few page swipes and we turn back 700 years, or seven centuries, when Isaiah gives a prophecy, but not just any prophecy, a very specific prophecy that when fulfilled will be pretty amazing, involving a virgin who conceives a boy, a boy named Emmanuel God with us. 700 years before Jesus is in that manger, a prophecy about him came from God. There are 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, and all these prophecies have been given by God over time, and now they are coming to fruition in the manger. So what is that saying to you and me? I believe there's an overlooked message of Christmas, and it is this. God has plans. God has plans that cannot be stopped, and He's got plans for you, not just for Jesus on an over 700-year timeline. No, God's got plans for you. God created you on purpose, and He created you for a purpose. And what He's saying in this moment is this, find peace that God's plans for your life cannot be stopped. That's the beauty of what Christmas is all about. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, God says, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. This is our God. His plans are going to come to fruition. Consider what kind of journey do you think it would have to take if you're the Son of God and you're coming down to a manger? How many miracles have to happen? How many there's no way that can happen have to happen for the Creator God, the Creator of the cosmos, to get into a human body and then get into a teenager's womb and journey to the earth for nine months in the womb and then to be laid down in a trough in Bethlehem? How long does it take to make that journey? What this really shows us is this. God has plans that cannot be stopped. God wants us to come to the Christmas season and find peace in that. If you can do all that with Jesus, then I'm going to trust you and I'm going to trust your plans for my life. Now let's look at this image of cross-references in the Bible that keeps showing up in my feed on social media. This is the attempt of a computer science genius and a pastor who spent years together trying to visualize the cross-references in the Bible. What is a cross-reference? It's those little footnotes on the page of Scripture or in the side margins that show you that there's another verse somewhere else in the Bible that's connected in the same thought to this verse like Isaiah 7 going over to the Christmas story, where they called his name Emmanuel. These give you confidence in the continuity and the unity of the Word of God. And there are 63,779 cross-references in the Bible, as shown by this stunning graphic. This visual representation by chapter, starting with Genesis on the left and ending with Revelation on the right. The longest chapter, Psalm 119, is in the middle. All of the arcs are connecting points colored by how far away they are in the timeline of Scripture. Louis went on to say, I have just been mesmerized by an overwhelming picture of the plans and the handiwork of a God who is weaving together not only a story, but weaving together lives and weaving together His plans. And I thought, if God can do that, then surely God's got me. Would be one thing if there was one human author of the Bible. You would think, okay, I see how the cross-references work because the author was thinking the whole time, I'm going to bring this back in chapter 9, and I'm going to bring this back in after this happens, and bring this character back at this point. But... The Bible is written by 40 people over 1,500 years writing on three continents, and you get 63,779 cross-references. You can trust this book, especially when you realize it did have just one author. His name is the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit used human instruments, and He wrote this story, and that's why it's woven together. Because God knows the beginning and the end. 
from the oldest times to what is still to come, and he says, My plans will come true, and I will do everything that I please. And what he's wanting you to know this Advent season is that he's got cross-references all over the place in your own story happening right now. There are people, places, circumstances, situations that God is working out right now. You can sleep in heavenly peace. God's got you. But you might be saying, Louis, in my story, there's death, diversions, decisions. I've been dinged by life, distractions, deflated, in a desert, desperate. God is cross-referencing the story right now, in this moment. And I hate to break it to you, but I think you've probably figured out by now that God is not going to give you the plan. A, you wouldn't like it. Be there's stuff in it you don't want to be a part, so you'd start trying to negotiate that at day one. C. It's confusing, some of it. D. It's surprising, some of it. God is not going to give you the plan. He never promised that. He has a plan, but He's not going to give it to you. It's not mean. It is a loving thing for God to not give you the plan because there would be no sleeping in heavenly peace if He gave you the plan. Sleeping in heavenly peace comes from taking hold of His hand. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 13, it reads, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. He gives his hand, not the plan. He says, Do not fear, and he assures you that he will help you. God knows if he gives us the plan, we're gone. And what he created us for primarily is a relationship with him. And so he says, Take my hand. Yahweh is reaching out his hand. Just take hold of my hand. Do you think a God who has 63,779 cross-references in Scripture is going to let you mess up your entire purposed story? At the end of the day, we need to be able to say, I made a decision while I was holding onto the hand of Yahweh, so my story now is I don't know yet which decision I'm going to make, but I'll tell you one thing, wherever I go, I'm going to be holding the hand of Yahweh when I get there. God's purpose for your life wasn't to make the right decision. It was to hold the hand of the Almighty God and say, I'm going to take the next step with you. I'm going to walk with you, God. I'm going to arrive with you. I don't need the plan, but I'm definitely in the need of the hand of Almighty God. And when I take hold of that hand, I find heavenly peace. I know if I simply trust God, the rest, both heavenly peace and the plan, will come. God's got a plan, and He's working on it right now, and He's got a hand that He's extending to you, and He's saying, come, walk with me. So in this season of Advent, we're thinking about expectation as we're waiting to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. That's what Advent is all about, remembering that in the wait, God will arrive at the right time with exactly what we need. We've talked about these the last few weeks about how Advent reminds us that God has a plan for our lives, and God's working on the plan right now. You might not be able to see what God's doing, and you may not have a clue what the plan is right now, but God wants you to know today that there is a plan for your life and He is working on that plan right now. He wants you to know that He's got everything you need to do, everything He's called you to do, and it's coming from Him at just the right time. God will come through at just the right time, and God's got everything you need so you can lower the stress today of wondering if it's going to be there, and if I'm going to be able to get there, and how I'm going to have what I need when I get there. God's got a plan, and in that plan, He's marshalling all of His powers right now to bring into your story exactly what you need when you need it. We see this in the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2 and the story of the Magi arriving. The Magi are part of the story that has been prophesied before, and we'll see a cross-reference of Matthew chapter 2 verse 6 to Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and 4 that were prophesied 700 years before. God comes through on His promises. What He says He's going to do, He will do. What He prophesies, He will fulfill. You may not be able to see it today, but God is at work. And think back to that cross-reference image that we talked about. This is the story of the faithfulness of God. It's also the story of the beauty of Scripture, that its cohesion is unmatched. There's something about seeing the cohesion of God's Word that resonates with people who are living in stories when they cannot see the cross-references in their story right now. It's not just that you have confidence in the Word of God, but you can also have confidence in the God of the Word, because that same God of the Word is cross-referencing your story right now. There will be a time in the future when you too will be referencing something that was said in the past, someone you met in the past, a situation you were in in the past, a circumstance or some chapter you went through in the past, and now, here we are, fast forward to the future, and you'll be saying, oh, that's what happened. When God promised this, when someone came with God's word and spoke that, when God's word came into my story and encouraged me in this way, now I see how he was working. That's because God can be trusted, and even in this story of the Magi, we see the cross-referencing of God 
and it just keeps on going. Continuing on, and in an effort to help us take God's hand and trust His plans for us in 2024 and beyond, let's return to our talk about I Am by reading a bit from the I Am Not But I Know I Am book in a chapter titled, You Can Trust Him, which begins, Just because we agree that God is bigger than our ability to comprehend doesn't mean we will automatically love and trust Him. And many, even among Christ's followers, don't. Not really. They don't trust His intentions, His reliability, His sensitivity to their needs, His timing. As you'd expect, then, they're reluctant to let go of their own story, no matter how small, self-focused, or unrewarding, to be part of His. Our trust in another person has to start somewhere other than in that person's size and strength. It starts in their proven character over time. But you and I can trust our God with our lives for that very reason. God is not only big enough to make the universe, He has created a universe that is breathtakingly beautiful, intricately ordered, scientifically dependable, the stuff of architectural genius. The universe itself declares to us that God is beauty personified, that He is organized and detail-oriented, that He is reliable and trustworthy, that He is genius-defined. It is not just that God made the world that causes us to trust Him. It's the kind of world He made. Because He is good, we can gladly resign our lives to His. Because of His character, we can feel secure in His massive hands. Still, sooner or later, you and I will come to a crossroad, a crisis of trust, when the sky turns black and life seems to spin out of control. That's what happened with our friend John the Baptist, not long after his encounter with Jesus at the Jordan River. John's outspoken criticism of King Herod's marriage to his brother's wife did not sit well with the king or his new wife, so the king had John arrested and thrown in prison. While John wasted away, wondering when or if he'd ever be released, he heard glowing stories of the miracles Jesus was performing and of the large crowds that followed him everywhere. Time passed. John waited. Finally, John asked two of his followers to ask a question to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? What John really wanted to know was, if you are who I think you are, then why am I stuck in this jail? Why don't you come and perform one of your miracles for me? We've all been there, wondering if God really is who we think He is, and if He is, why He doesn't come and change our circumstances. And what happened for John? Jesus sent a reply. The blind will receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. All signs pointed to the fact that Jesus was, in fact, who John thought he was. But for reasons beyond our understanding, Jesus did not perform a miracle for John. He didn't even visit his prison cell. And then for John, the worst happened. During Herod's birthday bash, the order was given for John to be beheaded, a senseless murder at the whim of a king's stepdaughter. You'd think that if God was going to come through for anybody, he'd come through for John the Baptist. But he didn't. In fact, from where we're sitting, it looks like Jesus let John down completely, standing by doing nothing while evil, cruel people took his life. But think about this. If John had lived a little longer, he would have seen an even more senseless event than his own beheading. He would have witnessed the unthinkable, the Lamb of God being crucified at the hands of an angry mob. And for this cruel killing, John would have concluded that God stood by and did nothing. Yet God was very much at work, accomplishing something bigger than John or any one of us could ever imagine. The death of Jesus on the cross is what appeared to be a senseless murder was actually divine intervention. When it seemed that God wasn't powerful enough or big enough to stop the chaos, God was actually being both big enough and good enough to orchestrate our redemption through the sacrificial death of His only Son. Never before had the world seen love like this. God came down to do the dirty work of buying back our lost and doomed souls in the most staggering act of grace and mercy ever known. I hope you see it clearly today. The cross of Christ is a place where trust in God is born. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an act of kindness from a loving and trustworthy God, an undeniable demonstration of His goodness that we can cling to when our sight and understanding fail to make sense in the circumstances that surround us. The skies declare that I am is huge, but Calvary affirms that I am has the best interest of every I am not in mind at all times. Our God is in the heavens and the whole world is under His command, but now, because of Christ, we can personally know how much He loves us and believe that He is using everything that comes our way for His glory and for our ultimate good. Now you understand why I so confidently urge you to exchange a starring role in your small story for a supporting role in our God's epic adventure. It's time for you and me to live as those who can never be the same because we've encountered both the great power and the great love of I Am. And in the days to come, when you are questioning, Needing, searching, wondering, asking, and struggling, you will find His sufficiency at the end of every desperate prayer. When you cry out at all the things that you are not, you know His answer is, I am. 
And what does this great I am say of himself? He says this to you and me. I am the way. I am the truth and I am the light. I am the resurrection and the life. I am Savior. I am Jesus, the solution, the restorer, the builder, the answer, the wise one, the coming one, the mighty one. I am the Lord and there is no other. I am God and there is none besides me. I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the Lord. That is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or any of my praise to idols. I am that I am, and that is my name, my memorial name to every single generation. Oh, my friends, our I am. Nothing is wasted when waiting on God. God is working in the waiting. Not wasted for John the Baptist, not in the 700 years before the Christmas story in Isaiah, nor the 400 years of silence before Jesus' birth, in the 400 years of slavery in Egypt, in Moses' time as a shepherd for 40 years prior to God showing up as I am and calling him at the burning bush, the plagues and the Israelites' freedom from slavery, and then 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after their disobedience. Well, we could go on and on with examples from Scripture. Am I right, my friends? Wow. Interestingly enough, though, when reading from Faith Yuri Cho's Experiencing Friendship with God book that we had heard from in a previous episode of OOBT, I came across this section titled The Impact of the Wilderness, Rahab's Testimony, that I think is invaluable for us to hear as we all move more fully into 2024. I am guessing there are quite a few of us, if not all of us in some way or another, who are wondering in some way if all we have gone through or are currently going through even matters at all, if any of it has a point or a purpose. Oh, those wilderness seasons. I know that when I read in this section from Faith Yuri Cho's book, it sure did encourage me and once again strengthened my resolve that these seasons matter. I hope this reading does the same for each of you, my OOB tears. This section begins, The wilderness can make us feel useless and disqualified from participating in God's mission. Waiting for breakthroughs can feel like wasted time. The wandering doesn't seem to serve a purpose other than to open our eyes to the harsh realities of life especially within cultures where accomplishments are adulated and progress is commended. Fruitlessness and standstills are usually disdained. Yet God's presence makes the wilderness matter. If our friendship with God is what allows us to be a blessing to others, then we can make a positive impact even while in the wilderness. Wanderers in the wasteland can still be used by God because kingdom impact is determined by who you are with. To the Israelites, walking the endless terrain may have felt like the tough consequence for their disobedience. But the world got to witness a chosen people walking hand-in-hand with our God for decades. Their plans were uncertain. But to onlookers, what God was doing was clear. Not only does God exist, but He also sticks with His people and protects them. Battles were won and sustenance was provided, and the only explanation was that Yahweh was with them. Israel may have felt like they were wasting time, but their wandering was also testifying about the one true God to every passerby in every village along the way. Kingdom impact isn't determined by our ability to get to our coveted destination. It also isn't attained by our record of perfect choices. Rather, kingdom impact is God's work, and we partake in it by remaining with Him. We see this from Rahab's testimony in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, in which she said, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Her confession was truly meaningful to the two Israelite spies she was hosting. It was at last time for God's people to leave the wilderness. Moses had passed away, and the new leadership had stepped in. Joshua, the apprentice who had sat in Yahweh's presence for decades, he secretly sent two men to scout the land, particularly Jericho. An alert went out to the king of Jericho at the first sight of these men, but little did he know that they were hidden in the house of a prostitute. When the king's men showed up, she risked her life to protect two strangers that weren't even of her creed or her people. She went to great lengths to cover for these foreign intruders. However, once the authorities departed, she revealed her reason. It was faith. Rahab came to know Yahweh through the Israelites' journey. She knew God, although she had never met Him. Rahab's testimony reveals what the Almighty can do with our lives when we adhere to Him in our most barren seasons. He is always doing something outside our realm of capability and influence. Friends of God can believe that God's goodness will triumph in ways that aren't attainable by our own strength. 
Faith isn't just a ticket out of the wilderness. It is the belief that God can move even when we aren't moving. God can use our lives even when they are in shambles. We don't have to reach a destination or be exceptional for the Holy Spirit to use us as a vessel of blessing. Kingdom impact is a byproduct of friendship with God. In the decades of waiting, the Lord was setting the stage for Israel's entrance into the Promised Land. Stories of Yahweh and His chosen people spread because God carried those stories, and eyewitness accounts became legends because His favor made it so. The world around them was sufficiently primed with God's message, and their wandering made history. Other nations grew in awareness of God, and some, like Rahab, began to have faith. The battle for Jericho and the new lands was already won before Israel even had a chance to pick up a sword. God knew what He was doing all along. Don't be fooled by the apparent meaninglessness of your wilderness wandering, for God is still up to something. We see this throughout the Bible. Hannah's wilderness was barrenness in her womb, but in answer to her cries, God blessed Israel with a prophet. David's wilderness was running away from a king who hated him, but from it came songs that bless us still today. Mary's wilderness was a virgin birth, but this service to God ultimately saved the world. Kingdom impact is determined not by our might nor by favorable circumstances. None of these biblical heroes had the marks of greatness. They just remained with God in the wilderness, and through that, God used their lives to make an impact on others. Stick with His presence. Purpose, provision, and redemption come after. Stick with Jesus, and in His good time, you will be where you are meant to be. Stick with His presence more than your plans. God can do more with your loyalty in the wilderness than you can by yourself in the promised land. Instead of earning your way to advancements and accomplishments, may you be propelled into them. As you wander through the wasteland of disappointment and closed doors and temptation to go your own way, that is very real. But if you keep following Jesus, you go where only He can take you. In the end, there are doors that only the Spirit can open. Only Christ can change hearts. To be propelled into our God-given destiny, we must abide in His presence. It can feel as if His timing isn't quick enough and His plan isn't good enough. However, Rahab's testimony proves that despite our track record of pitfalls and our history of regret, God can still do a great work with our lives. As John chapter 15, verse 5 says, If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh my. Once again, we're seeing more and more of the Bible's cross-references of one storyline to another, plus the purpose in the waiting. God working in what seems to the Israelites like a pointless wandering and waiting in the wilderness. As in the other seasons of waiting and silence we already mentioned, God was most definitely at work in the waiting. And... He is working in ours too, my friends. Cross-referencing our stories and aligning people, places, and circumstances to once again fulfill His purposes and promises to us. In our time, our lives, our piece of God's big-picture story that continues to be written to this very day. Oh, friends, for when we wonder if our wilderness journeys with God matter, when we question how they could possibly matter in the scheme of things, Rahab's story is just further proof that they do with 100% certainty because we, too, are part of the cross-references God is writing in His meta-narrative, in the big-picture story He is writing to this day, at this time, with our lives. I don't know about you, but I just can't get over how amazing it is that God is choosing to include each one of us in His storyline, the one that continues to develop to this day and forevermore. Truly amazing to consider, am I right? And such an important frame of mind for us to be in as we journey deeper into the story unfolding in each one of our lives in 2024. Goodness, that's so good, my OOB tears. Okay, I know all this carryover of Advent and even Exodus talk may have felt a bit out of place in the new year, but is it really? My hope is that you are still with me in seeing all the many ways God tied the Christmas story, I am, waiting, cross-references, the new year, and so much more together through all these various pieces and parts I shared today. And if you recall, I've often shared in our Advent episodes, and many others even, that Emmanuel, God with us, is most definitely not just in the manger but truly is God with us all year long, always. And that, my friends, makes all the difference in our lives, right? Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Our I Am, the One Who Will, our Promise Maker and Promise Keeper. It is also amazing to consider, to take in. Honestly, the more I studied in the Advent season, the more I couldn't seem to get all these connections and ties out of my mind. And I also couldn't stop thinking that they are all important reminders as we look forward to the new a new year can bring. My prayer in all of this has and will continue to be that we all remember our I am is reaching out for our hand with his plan firmly in place and his timing in mind. That's so good for us, even if it doesn't feel so good in 2024, my friends. 
How about if we all agree to spend some time in the days to come to sit with God in expectation of all the cross-references He's going to continue to put together in 2024, in my life and yours, my OOBTers. Truly amazing. Okay, friends, let's end our time together with this combination of a couple posts I came across on Facebook from Caitlin Buchillian that I believe are a perfect compilation of our conversation today and seem to sum up the prayers of my own heart as well. Father God, we pray to you, the one who always says come home no matter how far we've gone, the one who makes a way out of seemingly impossible, our God who made the ocean and parts the seas, who walks on water and calms the waves, our God who is the word and never breaks a promise, who could use one million words to describe himself and chooses gentle and lowly, our God who sings through the night, our God who lights up the dark, our God who created laughter, our God who just keeps getting closer. Our God who comes near in a garden, on a mountain, in a pillar of cloud, in a pillar of fire, in a tabernacle, in a manger, in a boat, in the dirt, on a cross, in every moment with us forever, here for always. What a God. What a Savior. Maybe, Father God, I'm the only one who needed to hear and declare and sing this truth on repeat today, but just in case I'm not, way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. Thank you, God. And for the worn out, the strung out, the walked out on, for the doubting and disappointed, slow dancing with question marks and a hundred unknowns, for the outrage, the outcast, and all out of sorts, for the discouraged and the desperate, barely holding onto hope like a tiny candle flickering in the dark, for the lonely, the longing, the lost, for the weary and the waiting, watching for spring in the middle of a seemingly endless winter. Emmanuel, God come to us. Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God for us. Us, the angry and confused. Us, the exhausted and grieving. Us, the overwhelmed and heartbroken. Emmanuel, God made flesh. Emmanuel, moving right into the neighborhood. Emmanuel, staying with us in all our humanness. The infinite in a finite infant, you are the God of all greatness, fragile and small, the creator of every good thing, humble and so very human. Jesus, it often seems like you take your time. You're quick to be patient and slow to be hurried, and honestly, God, sometimes you really want to speed things up, turn the page, figure out X, Y, and Z, see the seasons change. We want the quickness of prime shifting on a miracle, but you, the one who created time, stepped into time so that we wouldn't be bound by it. You're good with slow, great at the long game. Show us how to keep watch through the night, to trust you in the winter, to wait and plant and prune and water and till and believe that harvest is on the way. You won't be rushed, but you also won't be late. It's right there in your name, and the word keeps his word, so we're banking on it. Emmanuel, always. Good and faithful and true and here, here, here always here. On every page, in every season, you're the God who came, the God who stays. A miracle swaddled in a manger, arriving in the deep dark, later wrapped again in a tomb. To break night, to unbind time, to make a way. Holder of time, you are only ever good. Help us trust your clock, your story, your view, your kind timing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Isn't that so good at summing up our time together today? Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Also in one of these posts, Caitlin goes on to share some lyrics from the season's worship song by Hillsong, a portion of which read, I can see the promise. I can see the future. You're the God of seasons. I'm just in the winter. If all I know of harvest is that it's worth my patience, then if you're not done working, God, I'm not done waiting. You can see my promise, even in the winter, because you're the God of greatness, even in a manger. For all I know of seasons is that you take your time. You could have saved us in a second. Instead, you sent a child. Gosh, did you catch that last part, friends? For all I know of seasons is that you take your time. You could have saved us in a second. Instead, you sent a child. Wow. I hope that reality gives all of us hope in the waiting for God to deliver on the promises He has made to each one of us. Our God with us. Our promise keeper in every one of our seasons. So touching. As I mentioned before, I am so glad to be back after my holiday break. And up next, we'll resume our time in Exodus chapter 19 with the Israelites and their journey to Mount Sinai by picking up where we left off back in early November. 
Please don't forget that new episodes come out every other Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe so you never miss one. And if you're loving the show, I'd be so grateful if you take a moment to leave a review. It definitely helps others find us. One last thing, please don't forget to go to the mfaring.com website to sign up for the recently released PDF of my must-have study resources. I'm so excited to share this one with you. Be sure to check out the show notes on my website where I've listed all of the resources and scriptures as mentioned in this episode, plus a bunch of bonuses for you to spend some time in worship and also to take today's topics and apply them to your own life, to your own year. I want to highlight my absolute favorite from this list, Jess Conley's New Year Fresh Grace Same Us Growth Guide for 2024. Check this one out, OOBTers. It's so worth your time. This is going to be so good, friends. Please don't miss out on this opportunity to join God and what He has planned for your life this year. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. My friends.